Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist. To focus on the emotional connection more than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. What's up, feelers? And welcome to another mini-sode here at the Feelin' Film Podcast. It's donor pick time, and it looks like we were too fast for our own good seeing as how we speed right past June and are bringing you this pick a few days into July. Thanks for being forgiving, and we hope you enjoy this conversation as much as we do. We're talking Rush, Ron Howard's 2013 biopic about the Formula One racing rivalry between James Hunt and Nicky Lauda. As always, there will be spoilers, but before we get into spoilers, let's start off by giving a listen to one of probably the best opening scenes in recent memory, just to get you in the mood. 25 drivers start every season in Formula One. And each year, two of us die. What kind of person does a job like this? Not normal men, for sure. Rebels. Lunatics. Dreamers. People who are desperate to make a mark and are prepared to die trying. My name is Nicky Lauda, and racing people know me for two things. The first is my rivalry with him. What about Hunt? Has he changed? No, he's going on with. I don't know why it became such a big thing. We were just drivers, busting each other's balls. To me, this is perfectly normal. But other people saw it differently. That whatever it was between us went deeper. The other thing I'm remembered for is what happened on 1st August 1976 when I was chasing him like an asshole. I get chills. I get I'm, chills. This is going to be good. All right. Here come the spoilers. Here comes the conversation. Aaron, let's get started. What's your one word takeaway? I tell you what, let me do mine because I'm pretty excited about it. All right. I think that sounds great. Okay. So I, going through this movie, about halfway through, I'm like, I've got my one word takeaway. It's easy. The first half of the movie, I'm just like, why is it any different? So I knew without a doubt that my one word takeaway was going to be arrogant. Okay. <laughs> Both of these guys in their own ways portrayed this sense of uber confidence that was the best and worst part of them. And some would argue that that is what fueled their rivalry. But by the end of the movie, especially during the back half, when we get into the real, what I think the real meat of the drama, that word actually changed to ego. Now, both of these guys struggled with value and that need to feel important, which I thought was really interesting considering they come from different motives, different backgrounds. You know, winning a championship was important to both of them and beating each other was equally so. However, the psychologist in me started thinking about that Freudian model of the mind, you know, the id, the ego, and the superego. 
and how this film depicts what I think is a great visual representation of those three things. But it's the second of these three that really stands out. And in psychology, it's, quote, the psychological apparatus that regulated sexual and aggressive impulses and navigated the tension between those impulses and the demands and values of society. Obviously, that was not my words, which is why I use the quotes, because that's a lot of words that I would not normally put in those in those order. But nerdy, I know, and maybe a stretch, but I think there might be something there. As I was going through my, uh, my just thinking about my one more takeaway, I think that that's all represented. Well, you're over my head a bit. So if we can uh, bring it down to James Hunt level conversation, then I might be able to participate in that. But no. So would that be a Nikki Lauda approach right there? No, I think that was more of a Nikki Lauda yeah. one more takeaway okay. uh, versus a James Hunt okay. uh, one more takeaway. <laughs> but I like it. I like where you're going with it. I remember when you texted me while you were doing your rewatch and you said, I know what my one more takeaway. And I said, what is it? Fast? <laughs> That's not that obvious. <laughs> That's a little bit too obvious. Well, my one word takeaway is kind of like fast and it is a little obvious, but I'm going to go with the word driven. And I choose this word for a couple of reasons because I think that it has multiple meanings within the context of this story. And it's a fun pun and I like puns. Sure. So Rush manages to take a sport that I have little to zero interest in and it really does drive me to care about it by offering a compelling story and characters that really do get me deeply invested, in addition to the awesome racing stuff. It starts fast, it starts furious, and it mostly maintains that pace throughout. There's only a few lags of drama that are inserted in, and it's propelled forward by some incredible race cinematography and an adrenaline-pumping underrated score by, surprise, surprise, I did not know until I looked it up, feeling film favorite, Hans Zimmer. I love seeing the dual perspectives on racing and personal life from Lauda and Hunt, who are both driven to succeed, but traveling very, very different paths to get there. And they're portrayed perfectly, in my opinion, by Brule and Hemsworth. I'm always fascinated by the psychology of obsessive personalities, too. So I loved your one-word takeaway, Patrick, because I think as this rivalry develops, its impact on both men ends up being a very emotional experience for me. It's pretty incredible when a film can manage to keep my heart rate up with its intensity, but also make me care equally about both sides of a rivalry. It offers a superb package of technical achievement as well, and it made me want to look up more of the history behind it. So I really feel that Rush is one of the best sports films I've ever seen. And on top of all of that, Patrick, it made me so intrigued that I did research into this sport, which I still am not 100% sure I think is a sport, but that's another conversation for another day. I don't know much of anything about racing, and I don't know what you know about racing, but I'm only really familiar with NASCAR and just that they're in cars that go fast, have a lot of advertisements on them, and turn left. Well, F1 cars, I learned, can go an average of about 154 miles per hour. Now, that's pretty insane when you consider the courses that they're on. Um, they max out at just a few miles over what a NASCAR stock car will go. The difference is, though, is that F1 comes with an incredibly heightened danger was related to NASCAR. 
because with NASCAR, you're only taking left turns except for a couple of road courses, which really do slow them down quite a bit. And the drivers experience like a 2G force on these left-hand turns because of the curvature of the way that the courses are made. And their cars have cages to protect them during rollovers. So that's pretty helpful. Whereas F1 drivers, they don't have a cage. If they roll over, they're probably dead. And they regularly experience, Patrick, up to five Gs of force because they're making multiple quick left and right turns uh, on these crazy courses like Monaco, where you see them actually driving throughout the city and such, where there's like a pool that they're driving right by and then like a downtown area. I remember playing video games with F1 racers where I would drive through downtown areas. I didn't, I always thought that was a video game thing. I didn't think they actually had cars that did that, but yep, they sure do. So yeah, all of that stuff. I was driven to look up more about F1 racing after seeing this movie. That's how good it was. I, I was, I was in that same camp, not necessarily about the sport, but about the movie. And there was a, uh, I think YouTube had a, a short documentary that somebody had ripped from NBC sports on the, the background the, the making of. And one of the things that intrigued me was the fact that something that, that I pulled away was Ron Howard's assertion and the, the writer, I don't remember his, his name of how Peter Wagner, I believe is his name. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Those guys, how they just really affirmed that, what we were experiencing as an audience was really true to life because there's a lot about this movie that feels unbelievable. It feels very much kind of embellished. It feels like no way these guys were really the way they are. No way that James Hunt was that kind of womanizer. Um, and I think in the same way, Ron Howard said in, in one of the interviews, he said, this, this racing sport like the movie was just as unbelievable. And the fact that things that you experience as a race car driver on the F1 racing track, you, it may be less so now, but back in the seventies in the age of excess, it was just as extreme. And I think, I don't know if he quoted this or if he was quoting somebody else, but he said in the 1970s, sex was safe and driving was dangerous. And I think that, I think that Rush really articulates this idea in a, in a, in a very true way. The, the movie itself I think is structured to mimic a race because we get a back and forth perspective of Nikki Lauda and then James Hunt and then Nikki Lauda and then James Hunt. And it's almost as if we're getting this kind of parallel look from each one of them. And along with that, their success tends to get one upped by each other. So something happens to Nikki and then something happens to James back and forth. Mm-hmm. And I, and it's a really strong storytelling element where we get that complete picture of those motivations and backstories and really the source of the rivalry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. I thought that was a great observation by you. Honestly, I saw the notes before I rewatched it because I rewatched rush recently, mm-hmm. probably a couple months ago. And what got it, me excited about it. I was like, Oh, we got to put this in a poll have somehow find some reason to put this in a poll. Cause I want to talk about it. <laughs> That's how we do here. Feeling film. It's, it's all about us really listeners. We just trick you into thinking you think you're actually making decisions, but it's just us manipulating. We're, we're doing the puppet master. here. Hey, we're still, you're, you're still live. You can't, you can't take that back now. Oh crap. Oh, I, yes, I can. Cause I can edit. So oh, I'm true. still in control. I love it. Um, 
but yeah, no, I thought that was a fantastic observation. And I watched the movie this time around with that in mind that mm-hmm. you had said it mimics a race. And you're absolutely right. It does. It moves back and forth. When one gets married, then the other one ends up getting into a relationship after that. You know, when one wins a race or gets sponsorship, then the other one gets sponsorship. And it just bounces uh, back and forth. And, it, and it's a lot of fun. I think what's really interesting about the way they meet is it's kind of an accident, right? It's just like, hey, who's that guy who shows up? And it starts in Formula 3. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't even start in Formula 1. These guys, are it's almost like two minor league baseball pitcher, like a pitcher and a hitter in minor league baseball mm-hmm. who have a rivalry. And then one day they both make the majors and they're on opposing teams and they get to face each other again yeah, um, or something like that. I really enjoyed that. I did too. And I think that one thing I wished we had more of was their pre- F1 history because I know it seemed like the movie sets us up by kind of telling us that they had history. We don't get to see a lot of that. Of course, that would make the movie probably three hours and it would lose some of its, it would lose some of its, some of its speed at that point. Because as you mentioned before, it's a very fast paced movie and it's meant to be that way. When I was watching it, it reminded me quite a bit of the, the rivalry. And I kind of say that in quotes between Eric Little and Harold Abrams portrayed in Chariots of Fire they weren't necessarily direct rivals in that they were after each other, but I think it was more Harold Abrams wanting to better himself and Eric Little kind of was the, the mark to be set. I wonder what would their relationship have been like if they didn't have each other, if they weren't rivals. I mean, could they have been that good without pushing them to be better? Well, I I don't think so. I mean, I think that, this shows us a very good example of two people who are driven. I'm going to go back to my word for that to succeed and they need each other. And this is echoed in the end of the film, actually, uh, when they're having a conversation by the plane and they call each other champ. It's actually a really nice final scene of them together. But in addition to that, it's just they they have these different ways of going about it. But at the same time, Lauda needs Hunt and Hunt, he needs Lauda. And it's all right there in that final meeting at the airport. Uh, a couple great quotes come from there. Lauda says, a wise man gets more from his enemies than a fool from his friends. And to me, that's him saying that they're friends in a way, right? They're, they may be enemies, but it's transposed as they know that their relationship serves a purpose that is equal to that, that many friendships would serve. And I don't think that without someone pushing Hunt to be better, 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 he would be able to stay focused. I feel like his lifestyle shows us a person who would obsessively be overtaken by the vices in his life, the drinking, the sex, the drugs, all of that wild stuff would eventually take over his mind and his attention to the point where he couldn't focus enough on racing to get the job done. And I think Lauda provided him that focus. And for Lauda, it's kind of the similar thing, only, you know, Lauda probably would have just retired and gone on to do something fine in the business world. Like he Mm -hmm. didn't need to race. That was the impression that we get from him, at least in the end. And so I think that Hunt drives him to continue being better, better, better because he's got someone to beat. Uh, otherwise, I think, you know, he would just be like, oh, I'm done. 
I've, I've won. I've done my thing. I did. He, to me, Nikki Lauda is the type of person who is a master at anything he does, right? Oh, he wants mm-hmm. to drive F1. Okay. He goes to F1 and he wins F1 and then he's bored. So he decides to go, he's Michael Jordan. He decides to go play baseball now because he got bored with basketball. So now he tries to play baseball. That's Nikki Lauda to me. And I think Hunt keeps him in the lane, keeps him focused. Yeah. I, I don't completely agree with that. I think that's an element of, of Nikki Lauda's personality as well as what you're describing about Hunt. And I think for the purposes of the film, it is a true statement to say that they needed each other to be better. Um, the end of the movie really kind of gives a little bit of insight into Hunt's, if, again, if we take it for what it is, biopics being what they are, what we see is that Hunt never won another championship. Nikki Lauda did. And I don't know if Nikki Lauda, see, it's mentioned at the end through that voiceover that Nikki Lauda won another championship a, a few years later. And at the same time, he also says that Hunt retired after three years. And I think that in getting to Lauda had already won a a championship before the events of this movie. And I think that what it did for Lauda is it made him more competitive because you're right. I think he would have said, what's the point of winning if I don't have anything to compete against anyone to compete against, if it's just too easy I want to try something else. And I think what Hunt did, he gave him a new sense of, oh my gosh, I'm vulnerable. I mean, they're both still massively arrogant, but they feel like the other person is in some ways their kryptonite. Now for Hunt, I think he was completely driven to win that championship and was satisfied in that victory because of the fact that he beat Nikki Lauda. In fact, I, I forget if it's near the end of the movie, where Nikki, maybe it's in the scene at the airport. Nikki says, yeah, you're not really a, a champion, you know, cause I basically let you win. And he's like, no, this was the day we right. went fair and square. I did it. And, and the movie does that really well because, because Hunt has to struggle to make third place, you know, after his tire pretty much almost flies off the, the, the hinge there. But I think for, for us, what we see is that in the moment, James Hunt needed Nikki Lauda. But in the end, it wasn't enough to keep him competitive because three years later, he was still overtaken by those things. He was. And, and it's really, it's really a tragic character that we, that we see in James Hunt because I think you look at him and you see a, a sense of immediate and in the moment success, but lifelong regrets. Whereas I think with Nikki Lauda, in particularly the um the helicopter scene just after he sees Hunt win the championship, he turns to his wife and he says, No regrets, none at all. And I think it's in that moment that we realized Nikki Lauda doesn't need a championship to win. And so I think when he I would assume that when he wins the one three years later, it's satisfying, but it's not as satisfying as the life that he's been living in general. Yeah, I think that might be kind of what I was trying to get at and okay. in a roundabout way is that he could do anything that he wanted. And he would be good at it, but you're right. Ultimately, that was not the goal of doing the things, was not necessarily to be the best ever at them. But he like was, he doesn't, he's going yeah. to be driven to try that, but I don't think he needs it. There's a difference in striving to be the best at something and feeling like your life is a failure if you don't achieve it. Mm-hmm. I don't have the sense that Nikki Lauda felt like his life would be a failure if he didn't have it. Like he was, he could accept 
the other pieces of his personal life as success, as a means of success. Yeah, and that's where I think the the superego of that of that trifecta really plays itself out. I think James Hunt represents the id, this kind of un unbridled, just completely driven by your your sexual and 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 vice filled life. And then you have the ego, which I think is the the role of both of these guys and how they deal with the stresses and the and the dangers inherent in in their world. And I think by the end of the movie, what we get is a bit of a super ego in Nikki Lauda, which is I understand what's important. I understand what's meaningful. And that moment where he chooses to leave the racetrack because it goes above that 20% risk that he constantly harps on. Yeah. That's the moment that is it, it, the thing is I'm thinking about it now. It's still consistent with who he is, mm-hmm. but it's also a growth step for him because of the fact of what he experienced being in that fire before. Like he knows it's not worth it to go above that 20% to me. I'm yeah, fine living in the 80%. So it's yeah. definitely a life changing moment that he experiences that hunt does not have to go through. Like hunt doesn't have, I mean that crash is, is crazy. And we'll talk about that in detail in a second, but it's, Hunt has just a different, you know, plan for life as well. I mean, he says there in that final scene, he says, what's the point of having a million cups of medals if you don't have any fun? How is that winning? Mm -hmm. Um, And that's another great dichotomy of these two characters. Like the whole film, that's what they are. You know, they are two sides of a coin. They're two different approaches to the same goal in a way. And And it makes it, such a fun watch because mm. they both have strengths and they both have weaknesses. And those, neither one is perfect. And both of those approaches make them successful. And I think where, where Ron Howard depicts this in a, in a really great way is that he said, he basically puts their, their off the track personalities parallel with their on the track personalities. And so we see these two different racing styles between Lauda and Hunt and how it parallels their similar off the track personalities. Hunt is successful because of his arrogance, because of his, uh, what do you call it? His just loose cannon type stuff, his willingness to take those risks. Um, The no rules, the live by, live by the, by the seat of your pants. I don't really know the sayings or whatever, but then you have Nikki, who is very calculated. He's very technical. And you could take either one of those and you could say, well, if you had this, that's what makes you successful. Or if you had that, that's what made you what make you successful. But Howard depicts this in such a way to say, look, both of what they bring to F1 makes them both equally successful. And it kind of gets you to ask the question, is there a right way? Is there a better way to race? And as an extension, a better way to live. Now, I think that that voiceover at the end, again, kind of pushes it one way over the other. But that quote you said regarding the not being able to have any fun definitely creates a sense of merit for the other side. Because I don't know, Nikki may have been satisfied, but I don't know if he would have nearly had as much of a fulfilling life, according to James Hunt. Yeah, I think that's a great question to ask of ourselves when we're watching this is, you know, 
could we see ourselves being successful in one way or the other? And is it okay if the, does the ends justify the means? Or right. wait, sorry, does the means justify the ends? That, which way is that? The ends justify way, the means. That's <laughs> so right the first time. Um, because that's what it is for Hunt is at all costs, no matter what it is, I don't care. I don't care if my wife gets stolen away by Richard Burton, which is nothing to be ashamed of, by the way. <laughs> you know, many, many women were stolen away by Richard Burton. Um, but, you know, it's fine because I was successful in the end. And I, one thing I love about Lauda, he's so calculated. He's so meticulous. His detail, you know, he wants every he wants to know every little intricate piece of knowledge about the car. James is just like, does it go fast? Does it go fast enough? Will it go as fast as that guy? Okay, put me in the car. I'm gone, mm-hmm. right? He doesn't need all of that minutia, whereas Lauda does. And there's a great scene where I think it shows a slight amount of crossover. And it's the one with Lauda and Marlene when they're first on their first date and they're driving through the countryside and the car breaks down. And it's got some great banter and conversation he's trying to hitchhike and get them a ride and no one will stop and she's like i got this right and so she like stands out there and immediately a car comes to a screeching stop and we think as viewers of course she just won just like her character thinks that she she's like i got stopped they stopped because they think i'm gorgeous right Mm -hmm. and they immediately come right past her running up to nikki lauda and so then they end up in this car and this this great conversation ensues where she's like, what is the big deal? Like, you can't possibly be an F1 racer because you don't have long hair and an open shirt and you're not sexy and all this stuff. You're not James Hunt, in other words. In other, exactly. And that's what is being said. And she tries to get him to drive fast. She's like, you won't even drive fast. You're just kind of an old man. You're just pedaling along. And Lada says this. He says, there's no need to drive fast. It just increases the percentage of risk. We're not in a hurry. I'm not being paid. Right now, there is zero incentive or reward. Why would I drive fast? That is a very logical mind at work, right? Mm -hmm. That is, he is, he is thinking through this process and ticking off the risk, that percentage you were talking about, uh, that he kind of lives by with the racing. He's very calculated and smart about it, but then, she goads him further and he ultimately goes against it for this woman. Something in his life is able to push him to go past his logic and his reason because he wants to impress her. Yeah. And so he gets talked into it. And I love that because it took him down a notch. It made him more human to me because before that, it's almost like this guy's, almost robotic and to an extent where he was bordering on unbelievable because no one would make all of these decisions so perfectly. No one would be not tempted, so to speak. And then he kind of does, he gives in. I love that. And that's contrasted with Hunt, right? Who says in the film, it's a lovely way to live and the only way to drive to live each day as if it's your last. Yeah. There's definitely consistency in James Hunt throughout the thing. And I think that you can make the argument that he doesn't have a character arc, although I think that's, I don't think that's completely true. There's a moment, and I think it's the fire, obviously, the more obvious moment where he's looking, he's just, I don't think he's looking at the television. The television's on. And I think it's actually showing real footage from the actual crash, which I think is pretty, pretty brilliant from a movie making standpoint to actually have that uh, being on the television. But it's later on when he is, tr- 
he is essentially trying to be forgiving of Nikki. And he says, Nikki, I'm, he tries to apologize to him. And Nikki says, yeah, you are the cause of me getting that fire, but you're equally as in, as at fault for getting me back in the car. And that's, it's a fantastic moment because I think it shows a real sense of humanity with Nikki Lauda or not with Nikki, but with, uh, with James. And it also reminds me of that moment when I think it's just before the final race, they're in a press conference and somebody baits him, baits Nikki. It says, you know, how is your wife going to stay with you with that? Basically that ugly face. Right. And he basically says, you know, F you. And he leaves. I, and this, this was almost my would be connecting point. We always do this in our mini. So it's like, what would have been my connecting point? So we basically cheat. It's when Hunt says, Hey, I've got a follow up about that question you asked. He says, Oh yeah. And he just pulls him into a storage building and just pummels him. Yep. Takes his tape recorder and says, ask your wife how your face looks after this and just completely beats him. And I kind of like that, but I like what that said more than anything, which was, I think at that moment, James Hunt shows us that he has a, his, Nikki's his friend equally as much as he's his rival. And it's a beautiful moment, very violent, but it's a very beautiful moment because I think it's, it's in that place that James has vulnerability. I don't think I've ever, we don't ever see him until that moment having that kind of vulnerability. Yeah. I think we, maybe we do a little bit, but no, nothing to that level. We do somewhat when his wife leaves uh, his face, but like nothing at that level. I actually had that down as a possible connecting point as well. Um, And one reason is because I did a lot of research on this film. I'm going to start dropping some of that knowledge now, but Lauda said, this is the, was the moment. This quote asked by this reporter was the worst thing he had ever heard in his entire life. It was the most Mm. painful thing he was ever asked in his entire life. And that's why it got into the film because the real Nikki Lauda was uh, a very big part of this story and adapting this to the screen. So he was present for all of that. And what I love is that Hunt secretly sticks up for him. He doesn't tell Nikki he's going to do it. It's, I don't even, we don't even know if Nikki ever learns that this happened. Sure. That is a huge thing to me. And it really does. That's what I wrote down, spoke to this is where I believe they're friends, even if they don't necessarily ever shake hands and say it to each other's face, their actions behind the scenes show that they actually do care about each other. And and I think that's almost more powerful than if they were to sit there and have this normal cinematic moment where they're in a room together and coming to the same conclusion because they're not, that's not how they do it. And it's, and this scene is so great because it's consistent as well with Hunt's character. Like if Hunt is going to go after that reporter to get back at him, like this is what Hunt would do, right? This right. is not what Nikki Lauda would do. He would just cuss at him and walk away because he's a lot more composed. Right. Um, but Hunt doesn't. So when I said Lauda was actually part of the script writing, um, it was interesting because I learned that when he first met Brule, he, uh, Brule humorously recalled speaking with him prior to the meeting that they had for the very first time in Vienna. And Lauda told him on the phone just to bring hand luggage in case they didn't like each other. That way he could just quickly turn around and go back to Berlin. <laughs> and so he said they ended up becoming really good friends. But the fact that 
Lauda was very specific. He wanted this character to represent him in a, in a good way, in a way that he was approving of. And he is actually very approving of the final product. He says it's him on the screen. There's some composite stuff that happens. A couple of the races where hunts issues have and where other racers perish. They're not all perfectly done. But one thing that is perfectly done is the race where Nikki Lauda is in the fire. And I was shocked um, to learn that it wasn't actually the race of the actual crash, by the way. It was oh. a different race. I read that in a piece of trivia note. But he did, Ron Howard, that is, film this in the same exact spot that this occurred, that this accident occurred. So it happened in 1976, and this race was actually the last event that was staged on this track due to this happening. It's a German track called the Nürburgring Nordschleife, uh, also could be known as the North Loop, which is a lot easier to say. Yeah. Um, but they they had to cut it. They had to shut it down because it was deemed too hazardous. And Nikki Lauda crashed at a left hand kink of the Bergwerk, which was called the Mine, and it was a corner of the North Loop. And it was considered the most dangerous part of this track, but the whole track was considered to be very, very unsafe. Um, and now, after that, it is sometimes referred to as the Lauda Lynx, which means Lauda left because of where he crashed. But man, when I was reading about what really happened, they, they say it in the film really briefly about certain you know number of seconds and 800 degree fire. His helmet, so his helmet flies off during the crash and he's trapped for nearly a minute in 800 plus degrees Fahrenheit fire before several of his fellow racers were able to pull him out. He says another 10 seconds and I would have died. His hands, eyelids and forehead were severely burnt and his scalp and right ear had been charred by the flames. The searing toxic fumes from the burning car had also damaged his lungs and blood. Though he was alert following the crash, he eventually slipped into a coma and was left fighting for his life. At one point, the doctors had given up hope and a priest came and knelt at his bedside and administered last rites. He says, when I came to the hospital, you feel like you were very tired and you would just like to go and sleep. But you know, it's not just going to sleep, that you hear voices and you just try to listen to what they're saying and you just try to keep conscious because you're afraid that if you go to sleep, you aren't going to wake up. So this was a crazy accident. And I loved that the film slowed down for a second mm -hmm. and showed us some pretty almost grotesque and brutal, you know, depictions of what he went through. Mm -hmm. There's a, I, I'm really glad that you described all that the way that you did, because as you were going through that, I was picturing that section of the movie and it's almost visually verbatim. That's not a real thing. I just made it up, but it's, it's visually accurate to what he described. So you can definitely tell his, inputs into the film's writing were, were, were vital, particularly hearing voices around him, uh, seeing the blurry images of his wife, the hard depictions of his recovery. Um, I cringed both at the moments where his bandages were being peeled off and also when his lungs were being cleared out where, I mean, I mean, I'm choking now just thinking about it. It's just really, awful. And for him to say, do it again, be again, because he was so ready to get back on the racetrack. To me, I thought that was a, I'm a big fan of montages. 
And that was probably one of the toughest montages, I guess, if you could describe it, of his re- of his recovery in being able to get to that place where he was eventually going to get back on the track. And I don't know that I've ever seen tragedy, at least from an athletic or a sports competition, that well filmed or that well visually told. And so kudos to Ron Howard. It reminds, it makes me think of the the technicals of this that we're, we don't need to gloss over because I think the technical side of this is where the other half of the success of the film is. The storytelling is fantastic. But to start out with, the casting of of Brule and um, Hemsworth. And, Th- and Hemsworth. Don't say Thor. I was just there. Well, he was filming Thor. <laughs> Was 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 perfect. I was looking at some of the side by side photos of the the two actors and their respective real life counterparts. Crazy! It's crazy how how great it was. And Ron Howard talks about in this little documentary how it was over a ten day period that he went from saying, "Who are we going to get to play James Hunt?" to "Oh my gosh, we've got the perfect casting now." And mm-hmm. it was, I think Hemsworth. I think it said at one point that. He regrets not being able to have those conversations with his real life counterpart, you know, because obviously he passed away, but he got enough insight from Nikki wow. Lauda to be able to recreate that. And secondly, listening to Brule and listening to Lauda's accent, I mean, it was spot on. I could not tell who was who. It was just, it was just perfection. And I, I don't know that I've, I've seen a, a casting choice so so perfect for real-life people. Yeah, I adore it. I think the casting is better every single time I watch this film. I'm just mesmerized by it. I, I have a hard time thinking that there are better performances by these actors. And there may be. So I don't want to get into the whole, is this their career best performance? But it's probably my favorite performance for both of them. And I'm a huge Brule fan. I think he is just phenomenal and so underrated. He was actually nominated like crazy for this performance. He was, he was nominated for a BAFTA, a Golden Globe, uh, and an Empire Award for Best Supporting Actor. And he just, man, he's graceful, he's passionate, he's determined, and he catches the right balance between survivor and competitive driver. Mm-hmm. And it just perfectly complements Hemsworth, who is the perfect, you know, James Hunt. Right. Totally buy it. So I'm with you on the casting. I think that it's wonderful. Um, and I loved actually seeing Natalie Dormer in a quick role in the beginning as, as the nurse and girl that Hunt <laughs> gets with. I, I'm a big Natalie Dormer fan from like back in the days of the Tudors. So no, I'm not a Game of Thrones uh, bandwagon Natalie Dormer fan. I knew her before that. <laughs> uh, and then Olivia Wilde. I mean, this is James Hunt gets Olivia Wilde and Natalie Dormer in the same movie and throws them both away. Like, yeah. What the heck, dude? Well, it's the, it's the Thor in him. He's like, I'm the you know, I'm a god, so I don't need these women. I um, suppose. I guess I guess that's what it is. The other thing I really wanted to call attention to was the incredible cinematography that you alluded to early on. And again, going back to that documentary, because this is what documentaries are great for, is to give you more insight into the things that you love. But the specific use of cameras, I think there were no less than 30 cameras that were used in this movie there were a lot of practical effects that were used, particularly during the racing scenes. And there was talk about some of the better cameras being the ones that were mounted sideways on the vehicles so that you could get different perspectives. You can get that front vantage point and also the mini cams that were situated 
inside the helmet. So you'd get these great visually articulate moments of Hunt's eyes and Lauda's eyes. And you get this very intimate feeling with these guys as they're either getting ready to race or their, their first person point of view. In fact, um, Hemsworth was saying that for those particular cameras, they were so heavy that they mounted the camera on their helmet. And then because they were so heavy, they had to equally mount another weight on the other side. And wow. so the helmet became incredibly heavy while they're racing. Huh. Uh, so not only was he battling the ability to actually race through and, and get these shots, but also fighting this heavy, heavy helmet on, on top of that. But I thought the camera work was just incredibly fantastic. It gave us the, um, the intimacy that I think we needed to be a part of these races. It reminded me a lot of some of the camera work used in Secretariat, mm -hmm. uh, which not obviously a side-by-side -side comparison, but the ability to get different vantage points you know, from the point of view of, of the actual rider, or in this case, the driver to get a reverse view and not just these wide shots of these cars going back and forth or going uh, around this crazy track. Um, I think some of my favorite racing scenes were the ones where there was rain because that's where really a lot of the drama came and uh, it definitely heightened the, uh, the tension for me. Yeah. The cinematographer or director of photography's name was Anthony Dodd Mantle. And I'd never heard of that name before. And I, I haven't looked it up yet to see what else he's done, but I'm certainly intrigued by it because I agree. I mean, this is an incredibly beautiful film. I mean, it is well shot. And it, I love that you point out the different techniques. It's not all the same. Sometimes the races are shown in almost like a hazy dreamlike perspective. Like they're, they're in this place in their head they're racing. And then there's sometimes when the rain is just, those are my favorite scenes as well. Can't help it. Um, it's just gorgeous. It's that slow motion trickle of the raindrops falling on the ground and the best scene or my almost connecting point scene, um, includes no dialogue, but it's one of those moments in the rain right before they're about to race in Japan and Nikki and James nod at each other. I love and, that. Uh, Nikki raises his hand and I tell you, like, that's my, that's my, like, cry moment. Like, that's my, like, Aaron's tearing up and the sports is, you know, film or whatever is getting to him because I was so invested at that point in that relationship, man. That's all I wanted to see. And I feel like that's the perfect compliment to the words that they end the film with between each other where James says, I'll see you on race day, champ. And Nikki says, you will, champ. And, like, it, like they don't say the words before the race but that's what they're saying, but they're, they're nod. And then this is what they're actually, it's just, Oh, I love it. It really hammers home that relationship for me. Uh, but yeah, that and the score is an, a phenomenal. I don't know if you noticed this, but at the end, the final track, as we move into the end credits, it sounds so reminiscent of the ending track to the dark night. There's a slow buildup of drum beat <laughs> this bass sound that's you know pumping like faster and louder and you know and it's it's almost eerily similar did and you say it, louder or louder louder or louder i should have said louder <laughs> that would have been funnier but yeah i think it, i mean obviously now that i know it's zimmer it makes sense mm -hmm. but go back and listen to the final track of this movie and then listen to the final track of darth dark night and i think you'll see a ton of similarities the last thing i wanted to point out for my side before we move on or finish up, I suppose. It's just that one thing I really noticed when watching this movie this time around was how being a successful driver 
only is a piece of the picture because you can be the better person behind the wheel. But if your car isn't as fast or if your car is too wide or if a bolt is loose, then you don't win ever, period. And so it's one of the only sports where the equipment does not put competitors on a level playing field. We see that this also psychologically affects James during the movie because he just needs the car to be good enough for him to get in and go beat Lauda on the track, but he can't do that. It drives him crazy. And that, that makes sense, right? Because it keeps getting him disqualified. It's not his fault. And so I think that the common misconception, my own even, about racing is it's all about the driver. We know the people's names, Dale Earnhardt, Tony Stewart. Not a lot of people go, I'm a fan of Joe Gibbs racing. <laughs> They're a fan of the driver themselves because that's the personality. That's the person behind the wheel. But this is truly a team sport. And though the driver gets the glory, in a sense, he's the quarterback of the team. He's not the end-all be-all, and he can't do it without those people on the sides doing their job. So, you know, there's so much that goes into a rivalry like this that I just realized off the, like, Nicky Lauda and James Hunt may not be the best drivers in F1. They may truly not be, but other guys don't have a Ferrari or a McLaren, and so they can't win. Well, you make a great point because as we know from our uh, our knowledge in Days of Thunder, NASCAR is built to have the cars run equally in that it's really, according to Cole Trickle, you're really more worried about being beaten by another driver and not the car. So there definitely is a an actual difference between NASCAR. And so when you describe the, the names that you described were NASCAR drivers. And, but I, but I do agree with you that it is definitely a team effort because of the fact that you have all those nuances that go into making sure that the tires are set up correctly, that the, the, the engine's working, that it's not going to burn out. And the driver is essentially that quarterback. That's a great analogy that the driver is essentially the quarterback, but it is a team effort because the fact is, Loudon, and we don't we don't get that necessarily from Lauda's side. We get it more from Hunt's side, where he has a team of of people that support him on and off the track, at least early on. Um, I don't recall, besides his wife, I don't recall anybody being um, necessarily- in Lauda's corner. Yeah, I mean, no, it's, but, it's but the scene that really drove it home for me is actually at the Japan race, where Lauda pulls into the pits and he can't get out because there's another car stuck there. And that costs you crucial seconds that in a race, like you may be the better driver, but if you're five seconds behind because your pit crew couldn't get you out the door, then you're five seconds behind. Yeah. And it's, it's a hard thing to make up. That's, that's kind of more what I meant. Yeah. You're, I did, I did seem to imply that the cars were, could be drastically different and they're not, they're built even in a F1, I'm sure to all be close to the same they have they're, standards but they're more of a factor than than nascar, NASCAR. because nascar i think is the same it's the same brand across yeah. i think they're all chevy luminas or something like that whereas different uh different companies represent the the different cars in f1 it definitely makes me want to check out an f1 race but it's not enough to get me to to watch it without somebody else who's into it next to me i need a hans zimmer score behind it and then i can watch it <laughs> We need a Hans Zimmer score behind our lives to make it better. You know, it's just totally do, dude. (laughs) Well, this has been a fantastic conversation, Aaron. I have thoroughly enjoyed it and um, I'm excited about what's coming up because our conversations just continue to get better. 
Um, before we get into that, if you want to find me on social media, you want to continue the conversation, just check me out on Facebook and Twitter. I'm at Shoeless Patch, S-H-O-E-L-E-S-S-P-A-T-C-H. Uh, you can find me at one of those two places. And this was our donor pick for June and our voting for July has dropped. It's going to be available until the 10th. And if you want to get in on that, check out patreon.com slash film for as little as a dollar. You can get in on the bonus content as well as the voting that goes to help make episodes like this possible. So July is our cruising into July month. We thought we'd just continue with the fast paced words, but not necessarily the, the, the movies. And uh, this is Tom Cruise centric movies. So we've got Edge of Tomorrow, Rain Man, Days of Thunder, Jerry Maguire, and a few good men sitting out there for you to vote on. So please, if you want to be a part of that voting, join the uh, join the family of Patreon subscribers and get in on that. You can go again, patreon.com slash feeling film. Awesome, man. Yeah, hopefully we have more people. I love it when we get a bunch of voters because the votes are much more spread out than I ever expect them to be. I'll go into these things thinking, well, oh, this movie is definitely going to blow everything away just because I'm naturally in my head kind of leaning towards one. And then all of a sudden it's 20%, 20%, 20%, 20%. It's crazy. Um, and it's a lot of fun. It's so cool. So the more voters we have, the more widespread the voting can be. And uh, it's more exciting. And you can get in on that for like a dollar a month. And it supports us and it gives you a fun little participatory experience and for a couple bucks you get access to bonus episodes which is what we're about to record next we're going to do movie trivia battle number four and these are always a good time not if you want to learn anything because we are bad at them but <laughs> it's purely but entertainment it's purely it's, entertainment. It's probably entertaining to listen to us be awful and dumb so <laughs> yeah for a couple bucks a month you can listen to those bonus episodes and a whole bunch of other kind of stuff uh, if you'd like to talk to me on social media, you can do that at Feelin Film Aaron on Twitter or at Feelin Film as well. You can find me in our very active Facebook group. You can search for that on Facebook itself, or you can find a link on the website or in the show notes. And we would love to have you be a part of that community. If you've enjoyed what you've heard here or on any of our episodes, we'd love to have you leave us a review as well. Five-star reviews go a long way in helping us be visible on iTunes charts and in search engines and things of that nature and uh, helps other people find the show and maybe they'll enjoy it too. Thanks everybody for listening. This has been great. Yes, that's all for us. Until next time, stay positive and keep feeling filmed.